Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. More than 2 billion Muslims observe Ramadan worldwide, and there are a lot of ways to observe the holy month across cultures. This hour, we're inviting members of Nashville's diverse Muslim community to share what Ramadan means to them and how they plan to celebrate Eid al-Fitr, the breaking of the fast this weekend. But first, reporter Samantha Max has been with WPLN News for three years on the criminal justice beat. Her work has been nationally recognized for its excellence. Now, we've got some bittersweet news. Sam is moving on for an awesome gig covering public safety at WNYC. And we couldn't let her go without interviewing her one last time. Sam, I'm honored to have you in the studio with me now. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Khalil. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So how are you feeling today? Um, a lot of emotions. I don't know. It hasn't all hit me yet. I'm mostly just feeling really grateful for the amazing three years that I've had here. It's been a great three years and it's been a great eight months getting to know you for me. So tell me, how'd you get started in the criminal justice beat? Um, I grew up in Baltimore, you know, where it was just a topic of conversation always. And my freshman year of college is when Freddie Gray died while in police custody. So the summers after my freshman and sophomore year of college, I was interning at the local public radio station in Baltimore. Um, And that first summer, everything was very fresh. So I was actually interning on the midday daily show then, and we were bringing in the police commissioner, the mayor, to talk about what was going on. And then the next summer, all the officers or several of the officers who were involved were going on trial. And in Maryland courtrooms, you can't bring technology. You can't bring a phone in or a laptop. So it was my job while the actual real salaried employer um, reporter was in the media room typing up his stories. I was the little intern in the courtroom, scribbling down notes, running them out to the media room. Um, And watching one trial after the next of these officers and seeing them get acquitted and, you know, thinking about just this case and this moment that had really changed how people thought about um, the relationship between the police department and the community in Baltimore. I just felt like I had a lot of questions and I wanted to understand more how policing worked and how accountability works when something does go wrong. So how'd you come to WPLN? I came to WPLN through a program called Report for America. My senior year of college, I was applying to uh, newsrooms across the country. I applied to 75 newsrooms. I had a very intense spreadsheet, but the job that I really wanted was this new program that was just getting started called Report for America that was recruiting young local reporters uh, to small newsrooms across the country to basically they would pay part of their salary. It would be easier for the local newsrooms to bring people on and to keep local news alive. So I spent my first year at a small paper in Macon, Georgia, learned a lot. And then my second year I was staying with the program, but there was an opportunity to come to WPLN. And I came partially, shout out to Mariba Knight. We had had a mentor in common who he said, you have to work with this woman. I had just binged all of the promise. I said, I need to work with her. 
Um, so she was really a huge draw for me to come. And now she's a mentor and great friend. So, and of course I've just, you know, I've stayed this whole time because I've just loved being here and loved covering what I cover. And we got fortunately very lucky in the process. Now, you covered the pandemic, and during the earlier stages, you did a lot of reporting on how COVID was impacting prisons and those incarcerated in them. Tristan Neal has been thinking about the day he would be released from prison for 11 years. And on April 1st, that day finally came. Once I walked out those gates, it just was, it was, it, I can't explain the feeling. Like right now, even today, it still doesn't seem real that I've done so much time. I'm still alive and I'm free. How did you find that story? Um, I found Tristan's story actually soon after I got to Nashville. I was going to lots of different community events and I had gone to this like criminal justice reform town hall and I had met this man named Calvin Bryant, also known as Fridge, around town who he had been incarcerated on a really lengthy sentence for a drug-free school zone charge. Um, And he had ended up, his sentence got commuted and he had really become an activist since getting out of prison, but still had tons of friends and connections still in the prison. So he's someone that I kind of kept in touch with during my time at WPLN. And whenever I was looking for someone who was incarcerated or recently released to interview for a story, I would often reach out to him. Um, And after um, COVID really started spreading, I reached out to him and said, hey, I'd love to do a story about people being released during COVID and and what that's like for them. So he connected me with Tristan and we ended up staying in touch for about a year. So I did that first story just a few weeks after he was released. And then from there, every few weeks, he would send me video diaries of Mm -hmm. what was going on in his life. So when he got his driver's license, his first Thanksgiving at home, um, when he had a baby and we just kept in touch that way. And I ended up doing um, about eight months later, a follow-up story where I just kind of wove together all those different video diaries he had sent me. I actually should really reach out to him. It's been a few months since we've been in touch. I'm sure he'll be sad to see you leave. Now, tell me, what were some of the challenges of telling that story? You know, I think just in general, prisons are really difficult to report on because you can't just go inside and see what's going on. There's literally barbed wire, gates, lots of walls trying to keep you out, keep information out. And also just in the society that we live in, unless you are personally touched by prisons, I think people have very little knowledge of what it's like or honestly empathy for people who are in prison. And it was always really important to me to connect with currently and formerly incarcerated folks and their loved ones to understand how it affects them in their day to day. And especially during the pandemic, I mean, it was scary for all of us living through the early days of the pandemic, but when COVID was starting to spread and people could not get in touch with their loved ones, it was just a really scary time. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, Trayson was, he was like a journalist dream because he just, I would give him a prompt, I would give him a question and he just was always like so happy to tell me a story. So I really appreciated that in him. Last fall, you published Behind the Blue Wall, a special WPLN investigation into the work culture within Metro Metro Nashville Police Department. Let's listen to a clip from that reporting. Interviews with more than 20 current and former MNPD employees reveal a pattern of retaliation when people complain or challenge the status quo 
especially for female and non-white employees. They didn't like me because they knew I wasn't, you know, a yes man. If you're not really like drinking the Kool-Aid and stuff like that, you're not going to move far unless you just keep your head down. I've been shunned. I've been pushed aside or, or whatever. I mean, to me, it's it's really, really toxic. I was bucking the system. I wasn't doing things the way they wanted it done. And so then I became public enemy number one. More than 20 interviews. Wow. Sam, tell me, what was it like to report on that story? It was intense. It was definitely really intense, but it was so eye-opening for me. Um, The way that it all started was two weeks after I had published Deadly Force, which I had spent the past year looking into this one case of a shooting by a police officer here in Nashville. Just two weeks after, you know, I kind of wrapped that project, I got this email with this poorly formatted press release that was like, we are having a press conference about allegations of sexual misconduct and racial discrimination in the police department. I was like, that sounds interesting. I was actually supposed to be off that day. I was supposed to be taking time off because I'd like worked through a weekend. Mm. And Emily was like, let's just have Blake cover it. I was like, no, I think I should probably be at this. And it turned out that at that point, 19 current and former employees had come forward with allegations of misconduct, you know, of of fellow employees that had treated them wrong, some sexual abuse, some racial discrimination, some gender discrimination. And I was just like, I want to know who these 19 people are. So I first reached out to Monica Blake, um, now Monica Blake Beasley, a former officer who had gone public with, um, she had alleged that she had been assaulted by a fellow officer and um, that she had then been retaliated against. And that was kind of, she. T- I reached out to her and we had a great interview and she told me that this was much bigger than just her. So she started putting me in touch with people. And then after each interview that I did, I would just say, who else can I talk to? And suddenly one interview became two, became five, became, at this point I've talked to 25 people, a lot of them that I still kind of am in and out of touch with just saw one of them yesterday that have all just shared these experiences of me of, you know, I, I think a lot of my reporting is focusing on how the police department relates to the community, um, shootings by police, misconduct by police. But then getting to know these officers, a lot of whom were women and people of color who had gone in because like many officers, they wanted to help people, but also because they wanted to be the officers that they didn't see growing up. They wanted to be able to relate to people who looked like them and and for them to feel like they had representation in the department. And, you know, these were people who were really trying to make the department better and change the culture from within. And when they tried to do that, they felt like they were retaliated against, like they were pushed out. And a lot of them, their lives were destroyed. I mean, a lot of them really suffered with mental health issues, lost their jobs, lost their careers. Some were hospitalized. Um... And then just thinking about, you know, if these are the people who are charged with trying to help people and their own colleagues are hurting them, it just made me think, well, well, what does that mean for the community? You know, we, we often hear this phrase, the thin blue line, and that you back the blue, you protect your fellow officers. But I was not, in this case, I was seeing officers hurting each other. So I was just trying to understand 
you know, what does that mean for the public and trying to piece that together with the other reporting that I was doing. Excellent. It was excellent work. Thank you. You know, we've had the pleasure of working with you and airing a special story you did on Gideon's army and their violent interruption efforts at the Cumberland View Apartments. Let's listen to that. Hey, how you doing? I'm Goat. I'm T-Tab. Zarius Jackson. My name is Michael. These are the Gideon's Army violence interrupters. They're huddled on the sidewalk beside the red brick low rises of the Cumberland View public housing complex. Many residents call it Dodge City. This is like one of the most dangerous communities. Was one of the most dangerous communities in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm having been on guard about it, and I'm the director of violence interruption with Gideon's Army. As the sun sets, the area is calm. A group of shirtless kids is playing basketball. People are chatting on the lawn and ambling down the sidewalks. Some stop by to say hi to the violence interrupters. What up, sister? A lot of the time, this is what violence interruption looks like. Just being out in the community, talking to people. You know, you spend a lot of time working with Gideon's Army. And in that, you create a lot of relationships with and connections with the community. What does that mean to you as a journalist and as a person? It's both my favorite part of the job, but I think also the hardest part. Um, I think that I just, I connect really strongly with people. Even, you know, sometimes the police officers that I'm reporting on that are accused of really serious things, I, I still feel a connection to everyone that I meet. Um, and Rashida Fatuga, the founder of Gideon's Army, is one of the first people that I met in Nashville. I interviewed her for Deadly Force, the podcast about police shootings, back in, I think it was 2019. And as I was kind of learning about the work that she was doing, I was just fascinated. And, and she was someone that I just kept in contact with and, and kept picking her brain when different things were happening. Um, and for years, I had talked to her about, you know, I'd love to just kind of follow around the violence interrupters, see what you guys are doing. And, um, you know, COVID happened, different things came up. We weren't sure logistically how it was going to work. And finally, last fall, she let me tag around with them for a few weeks in October and November. Just, you know, I got to be out with them at night, during the day, during their trainings. Um, and it just really helped me kind of see their work on a different level. And, and this thing that's kind of become a buzzword, violence interruption, well, what does that mean? And a lot of the times you can only really understand these buzzwords that officials are throwing around if you can really be out in the field seeing it. But that also means kind of imposing on people's private and personal space. So it's just been really important to me to build those relationships with people. Sometimes that means having five unrecorded off the record phone conversations or meetups with someone before we ever do a formal interview, because then when the time comes down to it, they trust me and, and they know that the story I'm going to do, it, it might expose some difficult things, some things that make the, even them uncomfortable, but they know that I did my best to be accurate and fair. All right. So you're headed to WNYC to yes. cover public safety. And I know you're, we're still going to be hearing you and your voice on national air. What are you looking forward to with this new gig? I'm just looking forward to being out in the community more. That's one of the things that I also love most is just being out in the field. And with COVID, it's definitely, there still have been a lot of times that I've gotten to go out, but it's certainly been a little bit less. So I'm just excited to be in a new place and just let the community be the experts and, and take me in and take me under their wing and, you know, 
be on the subway platform, be at church, be wherever people are that I can just kind of get a sense of, I think my whole purpose is going to be trying to understand, do people feel safe in this city? Um, So I've spent a lot of time at WPLN kind of bigger picture looking at these institutions, policing, prisons, the courts. And now I'm going to be able to kind of take that to the next level and see, okay, how are these institutions actually affecting people in the day to day and how do people feel about it? Well, our listeners are going to miss you. And I know everybody here at WPLN is going to miss you as well. And I'm going to have to find a new fund drive pitching partner. I don't know how I'm going to do that. Um, Samantha Max, former WPLN criminal justice reporter. Thank you for reflecting on your time here in Nashville. The best of luck to you as you move forward. And thank you for everything you've done. Thanks, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the holy month of Ramadan and the celebration Eid al-Fatir, which marks the end of Ramadan. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. Earlier this month, the Islamic Center of Nashville hosted a series of community iftars to help folks learn more about Ramadan, a month of fasting, sunup to sundown, and spiritual reflection that ends this weekend with the celebration of Eid al-Fitr. Rashed Fakhruddin, who leads the mosque's community outreach efforts, was giving a presentation on the history of Islam, how Ramadan is observed, and how Eid is celebrated. Eid Mubarak. Can you say that? Eid so that's that Mubarak. Oh, good. So that makes my heart happy. That means <laughs> may, uh, blessed Eid. So if you As he us, was wrapping up, the call to prayer rang out over the speakers. Fasting was over for the day. You can break your fast with a date. Finally, it was time for iftar, the evening meal that comes after sunset. Rashed Fakhruddin joins me now. Rashed, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you, Khalil. Eid Mubarak to you, my friend. Um, so you, Eid Mubarak, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, for those of us who may not know much about Ramadan, break it down for us. So uh, in Islam, we follow the lunar calendar year. And just like in Judaism, and there are 12 lunar months. And Ramadan is simply the name of that ninth lunar month. It's just like uh, uh, September in the Gregorian calendar. But the difference is uh, each lunar month is going to be either 29 or 30 days. And so the lunar calendar falls short of the Gregorian calendar by 10 to 12 days. So each year, uh, Ramadan uh, rotates by 10 days. So right now it began on April 2nd. Next year it'll begin late March and then it'll continue till we hit December and rotate over 33 years back to April. And uh, during this time of Ramadan, we fast. Muslims are required to fast from dawn to sunset. So what's dawn? We're talking about about an hour and a half before sunrises. And we wake up, take a pre-dawn meal. We eat, drink, 
And then right at dawn, right to, like today, literally dawn started at 4.39. So we ate, drank, and then that's it for the next uh, 15, 16 hours until sunsets. We can't eat, nor can we drink. A lot of people don't realize we can't take a sip of water, neither. Mm. And no intimate marital relations during that time. And when sunsets, we can eat, we can drink, but and we can pig out, but we can't eat pigs, right? So uh, that's how that's how our day goes, uh, day in and day out for 29 to 30 days. And there are exceptions. Uh, if you're sick, you don't have to fast. Uh, the nursing kids till they reach the age of puberty, um, women during their monthly cycles, elderly, a traveler. But if you're better after Ramadan, you make up the fast. If you can't, then you compensate by feeding someone who's who's hungry or living in poverty. So that's just a background. But then why do we fast, people ask. Uh, so we have a verse in the Quran in the second chapter that says, O oh, believers, fasting has been prescribed to you as it has been prescribed to those before you, meaning Jews and Christians, mm -hmm. in order that you may acquire taqwa. So the word taqwa it's uh, very interesting because we're translating an Arabic word into English. So there's so many choices of words. I like to say mindfulness of God, God consciousness, but in uh, uh, the love of God. But ultimately what happens, it's, it elevates one's uh, spirituality. So one feels really spiritual in a zone, connected with God, connected with human beings. Uh, it develops social consciousness, patience, unselfishness really character development. There's a lot of things that people don't realize when it comes to fasting. It's very comprehensive. It's very holistic. It's not just you're abstaining from uh, eating and drinking, but there's a character component that if you violate it, it can nullify your fast. Uh, there are teachings like such as lying, backbiting, and even when someone, if someone wants to argue with you, you say, I'm fasting. So you don't get into a useless argument. You're learning to restrain yourselves, and so what it what it really does with twelve. I mean, one entire month of fasting is just like training camp, like in football. Uh, the Titans they go through, especially late July through August, mm -hmm. intensive training. And why do they do that? So they'll be prepared for the regular season. And those who don't, you know, they get a hamstring injury and so forth. Likewise, for us, we go through this uh, exertion day in and day out. So that once we finish Ramadan, we're at a higher spiritual level. Our character is better. We treat people nicer. Uh, we're connected with God. We're remembering God more often. And uh, it just makes that lifestyle. Uh, it, brings, uh, it brings a lot of inward peace. But, you know, just in addition to inward peace, a lot of people think it's difficult. And it is the first few days, honestly. But once you get into habit, it's about creating habits. Uh, you know, like I work at the power company at NES and I can tell you right after I take my pre-dawn meal and then, uh, I read some scriptures, I pray and then read some scriptures from the Quran. Cause everyone's trying to, uh, recite the entire Quran. Cause this is the month when the first revelations in the Quran were revealed and it says, read in the name of your Lord. And that's actually why Ramadan is special because our whole, our holy book was revealed the first five verses. And so people are trying to re recite the entire Quran from start to end. And all the mosques, they have these extra prayers uh, after our night prayer. And in the last 10 nights, we have our most spiritual night, Laylatul Qadr, where people even stay up all night and pray an early morning prayer. So it's again to repeat that spirituality 
connect with God, fulfill our purpose in life. But you know, my productivity, I feel like, and I, I can share this for a lot of Muslims, that you feel more focused. I come to work early, like by 6.30, and then I'm working extra hours because I just feel so focused mm-hmm. in my work. And then next thing, I'm doing other things that are nonprofit related, family related, and the night, day goes by just like with blessings. Hakim Olajuwon, who's a good friend, Mm-hmm. During the NBA, when he was in 94, I did an interview with him and we keep in touch, uh, the NBA superstar. He said, uh, actually, his productivity, his average, you know, he's averaging high 20s. It went up during Ramadan. Hani Mukhtar, he's one one of our members with the Nashville Soccer Club. He was an yeah. uh, MVP runner up. His, he's fasting during uh, that rigorous play in soccer. And that's really hard. But you saw him score two points just uh against San Jose two weeks ago. I remember so watching just... ha- Hakeem Olajuwon uh, growing up, and um, yes. that was absolutely amazing to see what he did. Now, 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 tell me real quick, what's the significance of breaking the fast with the date? It's, uh, you know, I wish I could say. It's just a way. I mean, culturally, uh, in uh, at the time of Mecca, where Prophet Muhammad was, they had dates. And so that mm. people like to connect as much as they can with the tea, with the way Muhammad, li- uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, lived. It's like you let, try to emulate a pers- your role model. Um, like uh, I loved Hakim Olajuwon uh, when I was in, a uh, young professional watching him play. Or people who like to be like Jordan, be like Mike. It's like be like Prophet Muhammad. So, you know, yeah. even things that are, maybe it's not really that, it's not really a religious tone to eat date. It's just you break your fast, but hey, he broke his fast that way. Let me do it that way. Okay. Okay. Now, Eid al-Fitr is the celebration that marks the end of Ramadan. I can imagine that it's a great feast with family and members of the community. How much preparation goes into that celebration? Uh, It is so fun. I mean, it's like, can you, if you can just imagine uh, going through this rigorous uh, day in day and day out routine, and then finally waking up and eating in the morning. So preparation, I mean, in terms of like the mosque at the Islamic Center of Nashville, we do a eat breakfast, annual eat breakfast. So that preparation, yes, it's it's on the shoulder of a few who really do the hard work. But for the rest, they're in a lot of families, they're preparing extra food and having open houses and inviting friends, relatives, and people are like going from hopping from house to house, uh, you know, eating food and just it's just a celebratory time. And, but it starts out really in terms of preparation. We have, we rent a place at the at TSU, uh, the indoor football stadium, and we have about nine major mosques. So several partner together. We partner with the Al Farouk Mosque, mm-hmm. and we'll have you know several thousands. And there's a there's a uh, prayer followed by a sermon in the morning, and then after that, people are embracing each other, and then you know just it's just people are just so happy, and then we go about our you know go about give gifts to each other and visit homes, eat all day for the first time during sun, during the daylight hours. So it's def, definitely, and celebrate the accomplishments of really yeah. fasting those 29, 30 days. Absolutely. It sounds fantastic. Rashad Fakhruddin is the, the, the Director of Community Partnerships at the Islamic Center at 12 South. Rashad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure, Khalil. Thank you. Now, Nashville is home to an estimated 40,000 Muslim residents, and that means that there are many different ways that the holy month of Ramadan is being observed here. For This Is Nashville, contributor Laura Dean has been sharing meals this month across the community and brings us this story. 
Russia and Zainab are old friends from Alexandria, Egypt. They moved to Tennessee in July, so this is their first Ramadan in the U.S. Half an hour before sunset, Russia is frying meat with one hand and stirring the mulukhaya with the other. She asked me to taste it because she's fasting and to tell her if it needs more salt. There are seven of us, three adults and four children, but there's enough food here to feed three times that number. She's also made a traditional Ramadan dessert. This is a taif. It's made with raisins, pistachios, walnuts, and almonds. In Egypt, she usually buys it. But this year, she learned how to make it herself from a YouTube video. They actually do sell a thayif in Nashville, but neither Zainab nor Russia have cars, and getting around is a challenge. At the exact moment of sunset, the call to prayer app goes off on Russia's phone. She hurries off to call her husband, who's working at a factory. He doesn't like to have his call to prayer app go off at work. So each day at sunset, his wife calls to let him know when to break his fast. It's their first Ramadan away from home, and they miss this time of year in Egypt terribly. Russia says back home during Ramadan, you feel like everyone in the street is one family. At the end of the night, she shows me a video of friends in Egypt getting ready for Ramadan, with this song playing in the background. The lyrics say, Ramadan in Egypt is something else. At L&E Market, Yusuf Yusuf mans the cash register at the height of the after-school rush. He's been in the U.S. for almost 40 years and makes it his business to help out new arrivals like Russia and Zainab. As soon as you walk in, you can tell his store is a community hub. People address him by name or call him Am Yusuf, meaning Uncle Yusuf, a term of respect and endearment. He and his family are Coptic Christians. They don't celebrate Ramadan themselves, but his daughter has organized the delivery of Eve boxes out of his store. These help low-income Muslim families celebrate the end of the month of fasting. This isn't unusual. Yusuf has always tried to stock products for his Muslim neighbors. The meat I have is halal. I do sausage in the store, so I do it from the lahm halal, the same meat. Right now, like I have quails halal, and the help extends far beyond the food he stocks. From reading prescriptions to advising people on how to find lawyers, Yusuf's shop provides unique services. It, it's kind of like uh, community and the grocery and uh, uh, business and helping. It's, it's a lot of things. Yusuf says when he was growing up, 
Ramadan in Egypt was a festive time for him too. Our neighbor or next door, upstairs, downstairs, in Ramadan, they used to give us uh, food and, uh, you know, whatever they have. Also, in our Easter, we give them something, and Christmas, we give them. Here in Nashville, he carries on that spirit. For Avi Misto, the only Ramadan tradition she's known is growing up here in Tennessee. She's been helping out at her father's grocery store, Nauru's Market, for as long as she can remember. Avian says fasting in school here wasn't always easy. It felt like a very small thing that no one really, no one really understood or knew about. So like if we were celebrating or if we didn't eat, right, and we were going to school, other kids didn't understand why we were fasting or understand why we had like henna on our hands or like why we couldn't drink or drink water or eat food until like a certain time. But now, she says, a number of Muslim parents she knows are trying something new. As like a community, what we've been trying to do recently in the past couple of years is make it so the kids don't feel like they're missing out on American holidays, like Christmas and all She says stuff. people have started to do things like a countdown to eat and gifts for kids that morning and special decorations around the house. Though there aren't any young children in Avin's family anymore, they too are trying something a little different when it comes to gift giving. Uh, our family's doing like secret servants. So like everyone's picked a name, someone has to buy somebody a gift. Uh, so, you know, make it more fun. <laughs> Avin's family has been open to making some changes, but they also hold fast to many traditions. And she says she'd like to see a wider array of holidays being shared and understood in the community. That's exactly what this hour is all about. Thanks to contributor Laura Dean for that story. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll invite some more members of the Muslim community to share how they observe Ramadan within their cultures. And we'd love to hear how you observe Ramadan or what the month means to you. So tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is Nashville. While Ramadan and Eid al-Fitr are celebrated by Muslims globally, each culture has its own specific customs. Now, we don't have time to get into all that in just one hour, but we'd have three guests joining us who can share how they celebrate. I'd like to welcome Samira Kamal, Eva Abdullah, and Tassin Fatima to the show Eve Mubarak, and thank you all for joining us. Now, I know this is a very special time for you all. Samira, let's start with you. What does Ramadan mean to you? Hi, Eid Mubarak, and thank you for having me. Um, Ramadan to me is a time of giving and charity and generosity. And I think everything that we kind of do in that time is a reflection of what we can improve upon ourselves and what we can give to others in the community. It's a very communal feeling from everything we do, whether it's our dinners or praying together or, you know, just making the house festive for it, um, buying gifts for the children for Eid. It's a very communal time. And, um, but I think the hallmark of it is charity and giving to others that really need it. Tassin, what are your reflections on Ramadan? Hey, thank you, Khalif, for inviting me. Um, 
for me, it builds a, a deep sense of uh, being cautious over one's own life and actions. So in one way, it's a it's a, a very high level of connection with God. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it brings me closer or brings, I think it brings everyone closer to themselves, their thoughts and emotions. And um, it's like being in a constant state of mindfulness and reflection. Um, it's a whole list of things like how um, Brother Rashid uh, said, it's, it's a whole prescription for me that uh, builds how, you know, the rest of the year should go. Eva, how does that resonate with you? Yeah, I, I relate to a lot of what she just said about the reflection part. Um, I, I take the opportunity in Ramadan to reflect on how uh, I am to my family, how I am to my community, and also uh, how my relationship with God is and reflect on ways I, I'm doing that well and ways I can improve on that. Now, Tassin, I understand you were born and raised in India and you moved to Nashville about 18 years ago. Tell me, how is observing Ramadan different here? Um, so, yeah, I've been in the U.S. for 25 years, out of which my 18 to 19 years have been in Nashville. Um, it's actually very, very different um, being born and raised in India. Um, I would say it's more about food over there. And um, we enjoy, like, obviously, because it's it's cultural food. The moment you walk out on the streets, there are vendors, there, there are carts full of food. It's it's very tempting. It's, it's highly tempting. And um, honestly, I prefer spending my Ramadan here because it's a better spiritual connection for me over here. Because that's one thing that I want to not, I mean... It's the, it should be the least of my concerns, food during Ramadan. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the biggest, biggest difference for me is I was, um, there are not too many mosques in India for women. And uh, growing up, we never had a mosque for women in my city. So I, I never went to a mosque. Yes, women and children do pray, but they pray at home and worship from home. So this that's the most beautiful thing for me in U.S. I enjoy going uh, to the mosque during Ramadan. I spend most of my time like in the evenings, even, even with work schedule or even with schools next day. I do not want to miss that opportunity. And so do my kids. They love going to the mosque. They love joining um, the others and meeting the community. So that's the biggest difference um, from India to here. And honestly speaking, I enjoy my Ramadan over here. What makes you enjoy going to the mosques here so much? Um, so at one level, like I said, um, it's it's the connection with God, all those special prayers that you're doing in congregation. But on the other hand, it's, it strengthens our social connections. It, it, uh, it builds a sense of community. And um, knowing that you are in um, solidarity with all the Muslims around the world, like everybody, um, actually, all the Muslims are uh, ready to exert this extra effort during the month of Ramadan. Um, so that's the most beautiful part. And uh, Nashville is, again, so diverse that I love meeting people from all different cultures. Um, so it's it's just beautiful going to the mosque. Mm -hmm. uh, Eva, I understand you found Islam in your teens. Why did you choose to start practicing? Um, well, it was a funny story. Uh, I was actually a missionary as a teenager and uh, I was trying to um, witness to um, some people in my community up in Minnesota 
And along the way, I um, was exploring other faiths to um, see what they also believed in. And along the way, I uh, was moved uh, by the message of um, Islam and mm. decided that it was right. It resonated with me very deeply. Your husband is Kurdish, right? Yes, he is. So what are some of the cultural differences of how Kurds observe Ramadan? Um, I, I guess a big one is food. Um, Kurds are big about the, the food options they have in Ramadan. Um, like, for example, traditionally, a lot of times they'll break the fast with a, a red lentil soup. Now, there, it, this red lentil soup is common amongst a lot of the um, Muslim countries, but, you know, Kurds have their own way of doing it. And um, they're big about family meals um, and uh, they're big about community in general um, because of all the oppression and stuff they've gone through. Um, they're big on uh, doing as much together as they can. Now, you have six children and I imagine I do. that keeps you very, very busy. <laughs> how, <laughs> yeah. how are you, you know, Rashad shared a typical day, but I want to know with six kids, how are you able to manage the days? Well, um, uh, luckily, uh, three of my kids are now young adults. So that helps a lot because they're able to contribute. In fact, uh, just uh, yesterday morning, my 23-year-old uh, actually made the pre-dawn meal for us and woke me up to it. It was a pleasant surprise. Um, uh, but uh, they are... Um, each of them have their own ways of contributing and they vary in age. So it, it sounds like a lot, but the, you know, pretty much I only have a few young ones. Okay. Now, Samira, your parents came to Nashville from Afghanistan in the eighties. Do you have any thoughts about the differences between observing Ramadan there versus here in Nashville? I would just kind of echo what the, some of the other sisters have said before me in the sense that with overseas in the U S that over there, it's probably centered more on gatherings and food and um, like the shops closed during the day, you know, and people are out at night shopping or the, at least that's what my mother would tell me. Um, but over here, it is definitely more spiritual and it is more about your connection with God and um, your self-reflection and, and your improvement. It's like a spiritual boot camp over here, you know, and and yes, it is about community as well and iftar dinners and, and all of that. But um I would say it's mostly about your individual reflection with God and then kind of joining others in celebration when it is time to break your fast or it is time to celebrate Eid and whatnot. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. Okay, so Eid al-Fitr is quickly approaching. It's the celebration that marks the end of Ramadan. Tassin, tell me, what are you most looking forward to for Eid this year? Um... I would say again the same thing: community, social connections, and um, and at the end of the month of Ramadan, I'm looking forward to a better year. In other words, um, it's not just about that one day, because it's it's um, supposed to build a perfect balance between uh, your body and soul, and and a perfect balance between building connections with God, ourselves, and the community. So all these things, I really do hope um, that's. I will take it, you know, I'll carry this 
throughout the year until next Ramadan. And um, we have things planned at the masjid, uh, the mosque for uh, the carnival. Uh, we have breakfast over there after the morning prayers. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to meeting because I don't have any family other than my immediate family, um, you know, my, my children and my husband and myself. So all these friends are, in other words, my family for all these years. So I look forward to meeting all of them at that place and enjoying the breakfast with them. Are you going to be wearing anything special as you meet your family? Uh, yeah, I do. Actually, um, I love cultural, uh, you know, clothes from other countries. And I had the privilege of uh, traveling to Palestine last month and I purchased a dress from there. So I'm looking forward to wear that on the day of Eid. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it's going to be a highly <laughs> fashionable affair. Samira, what's your outfit going to be like? I haven't decided, honestly. I've narrowed it down to three outfits. And so I will probably, I just had a little girl and I'll probably end up doing something that matches her, but it will be a cultural outfit, um, an Avani outfit probably, because that's my heritage. Okay. Okay. Eva, you know, about the outfits, like, do you all travel to get these clothes or do you order them? Um, so, sometimes I do order them, um, but, uh, and this year that's what I did. I ordered a dress and a scarf online. Very nice. Very nice. Are your kids going to have matching outfits or they, they get to do their own thing? Well, I'll let the young men do their own thing, but the younger ones, uh, I will definitely have them color coordinated. Okay. Okay. Now <laughs> you all mentioned that, you know, um, traditionally in other places, it's about the food. And I want to talk about that. Um, you know, a month up of a month of sun up to sundown fasting, and know that that can be hard and pretty important. Now, Eva, as you have these six children to feed, what are some of your dishes that you make for Eid? Well, um, we we like to eat a lot of um, traditional Kurdish food, so that could be things like you know. Uh, wheat dumplings in a tomato broth called tershik um, has lots of veggies and it's uh, the wheat dumplings are stuffed with meat and veggies. Um, or sometimes it could be things like biryani or other rices. Um, another favorite is kuta um, kalabe, which is like this uh, rice dough that's stuffed with meat and vegetables and then it's fried. Um, the first time my cousin ate this, he 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 likened it to tater tot casserole. He said this is like a handheld version. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I want to ask this question. Rashid had mentioned it earlier in the fast. You know, you want to almost purify and cleanse yourself. Obviously, no food or water, no lying. You all have mentioned about how it's to strengthen your fortitude. Something that also tests the fortitude is that he mentioned no marital relations during that time. How hard is that for you all? Um, we, get, we get used to it. <laughs> and I want to also emphasize we are allowed to have marital relations after hours, after sunset. Okay. And it's also considered a form of worship in Islam, so... Okay. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, you know, Eva, tell me about your family's plans. What are your plans for Eid? 
Well, my husband comes from a really big extended Kurdish family. So um, we've kind of outgrown all gathering at one house. So this year um, we have a big gathering picnic that we're going to go to later in the day on Eid. And I'm looking forward to that. All right. Final question. Uh, Tassin, I'm going to end with you. You know, what what really makes you touched on it a little bit for it, but really tell me what makes this time of year so, so special for you and your loved ones? Um, I, uh, you know, what I would like to say is um, how it's, it's, it has a profound impact on, uh, you know, we all know that it has a profound impact on our spiritual um, aspect and connection, even though um, it entails uh, physical hardships. So in other words, what I have been talking to my own children and every and everyone who asked me about Ramadan, it's like our stomachs are empty, but our soul is full. Mm. Um, so it, it teaches us self-control. Yes, we've talked about how we have food and, and we're not, you know, we're not eating it. And we are supposed to, like Brother Rashid said, we're supposed to... Um, you know, avoid any kind of anger issues, uh, arguments, conflicts. It teaches us patience. And most of all, it teaches us empathy for those who, who don't have food. Um, we are required to give charity during this month to share with, uh, you know, people who don't have uh, the same the same, uh, you know, status or the same money as you, or don't have food to look forward to. Um, it strengthens our social connection. So, like I said, it's it's just such a perfect balance uh, between um, everything that life has to offer to us, um, spiritually and physically. Um, and uh, this is. This is like very dear. And I would say even kids who are not supposed to, who don't have to fast, get into that mode, looking at um, the adults, looking at the community. So it's the most beautiful month of the year. And um, and it's sad at times it's actually when Eid comes, yes, we are celebrating it, but it's a sad feeling that Ramadan is gone. I want to thank my guests, Samira Kamal, Eva Abdullah, and Tassin Fatima for being with us. Ramadan Mubarak to you and your families. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This weekend, Nashville SC plays its first home game at the brand new Geodis Park. Maybe I'll see you there. Tune in Monday to hear about the new park and what it means for our city. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our music are LaRange and Namir Blade. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>